Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Comedian and TV star Bill Cosby has spent much of the past year refuting accusations from more than 50 women that he had unwanted sexual contact with them, including some who said Cosby raped them. Up until last week, Cosby had only faced the allegations publicly by defending himself in civil lawsuits brought by a few of the alleged victims. But then last week, Cosby was arrested and charged with drugging and sexually assaulting a woman in his Montgomery County home almost 12 years ago. The charges were filed to beat Pennsylvania's statute of limitations and because prosecutors said they had new evidence from one of those lawsuits. Cosby's arrest brings up a number of issues that we'll discuss on today's program with Jennifer Storm, Pennsylvania's victim advocate. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Also, Kristen Hauser, Chief Public Affairs Officer with the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. Kristen, welcome to the show. Good morning, Scott. If you would like to weigh in in the conversation, give us a call, one 800 729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Many people were surprised when criminal charges were filed last week. Not surprised that there were charges or that uh, Cosby was, you know, no way that he committed these things, but because there were criminal charges brought uh, at all because of statute of limitations, the passage of time. Uh, but Jennifer, when you heard about this, I know that you had a, a, a you know, you talked to a lot of uh, media afterwards. What, what were your thoughts? You know, I think it was about time, right? And, you know, we'd heard so much from so many women, right? So many stories that were similar, so many accusations that, that sounded similar, that it just felt like true vindication and validation for all those women who have been bravely come forward and, and you know, tried to tell their truth. And, and unfortunately, the majority of these victims fall outside of the statute of limitations. We've got two that don't, and one of them happened to be in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, and we have a very brave prosecutor's office there who takes a stand for victims. They have a history of taking a stand for victims. And, uh, you know, they, they decided to, to file these charges, and I'm very grateful that they did. Kristen, what did you think? It was a little bit surprising to see um, after such a long passage of time, but uh, hopeful. I mean, really... Um, you don't get to see these kinds of things happen very, very often. But I think for so many people that work in this field and know how long it takes survivors to come forward, how normal that is, um, it, it's sort of vindicating to, to see it being taken seriously and uh, see the process be put to work. When you say how long it takes victims sometimes, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that most survivors don't ever report in an official manner, period, uh, let alone telling friends and family. But um, to make an official report, it's very, very normal. It is the norm uh, that, that there's a delay between the time of the assault and making the report. In, in this case, a year had passed um, back in 2004 um, before she had come forward. And, and people like to think that um, life works like it does on television and that people go right. running to the police or <laughs> running to the hospital. And that's in, in reality, uh, not at all what happens. What people do is they try to get on with their lives. They try to put it behind them. They don't want to think about it, face it, which means you're not going to go make a report. Um, and then when time passes, and for many people that, that can be years, and you realize that you can't put it behind, you you hear rumors of perhaps about the person still doing it to other people, um, people decide at, at a much later date to, to come forward and try to set things right. 
But then, I mean, and that raises so many issues in itself, but one of the issues that it does bring up is that how much more difficult it is to prosecute cases with that passage of time. Well, it, it can be, certainly, but that's where you have to rely on your investigation process and you have to rely on a prosecutor to look at what's been discovered and, and make that decision. And frankly, things are changing. So um, we have electronic communication. We've got digital uh, videotapes going on and security. You know, there's all kinds of things that are being recorded and saved um, and archived in some way now with electronic communications, surveillance, um, social media, all those kinds of things, that uh, the likelihood of, of having something captured, uh, a part of a conversation, many times, because these are not stranger cases, most of the time we're talking about people who have a relationship, there is communication afterwards about what happened, that feels, I'm confused, can you fill me in, etc. You know, the, the likelihood of having something that's usable at a later date, I think now is is much more likely now than it was 20 years ago. Jennifer, you and I were talking about this a little bit uh, before the show. When the alleged victim in this case, Andrea Constan, uh, first reported to, I don't know if she went to police first but or the district attorney's mm -hmm. office, but the case was not prosecuted. Uh, the district attorney at that time, Montgomery County, Bruce Castor, mm -hmm. said that he didn't feel there was enough evidence. As far as I know, there wasn't a rape kit or anything like that. And just from what Kristen described, there often isn't if there is a delay mm -hmm. from the incident itself to uh, when it is reported. I mean, one. I'm sure that the Cosby's lawyers will say that just like the Sandusky case, mm -hmm. that the, there was, you know, some investigation by uh, authorities, but they didn't think there was enough charges. Same thing here. Yeah, and I think Castor's been on record um, numerous times claiming that the woman's credibility was called into question, that there wasn't a strong enough story. In all actuality, you know, most of these cases rest on the victim's testimony and the victim's account of what happened. You know, we're fortunate in Pennsylvania we now have expert witness testimony. So we can have someone come to the stand and talk about why victims delay in, in reporting and what the traumatic experience is and why maybe the facts in the case aren't always linear as we would like to think they should be, right? When a victim tells their story, we want to know what happened when it started and we want every detail in this kind of perfect line. And every, that's not how victims experience trauma. They just know, don't. Just like Kristen said, everyone thinks it's a TV show. And it's not. I, I mean, I think of Law and Order SVU mm -hmm. that, you know, starts off here, yes. police investigate, go to the DA. DA always says, well, I don't know, we need more here. But by the end, the, the, the you know, the, the, the rapist or whoever has committed the mm -hmm. crime uh, is going to jail. Yeah. And it's that's not real life. It's not. And unfortunately, oftentimes these cases come down to one person's story against another person's story. That in and of itself though, in Pennsylvania is enough to bring a case to prosecution. So we need to have more brave prosecutors who are willing to believe victims and then take a case to trial, even if it means that they might not win. We see a lot of these cases fall in the face of prosecution. Unfortunately, they're really hard cases to try, and juries aren't as informed as they should be. I think with the public discourse that we continue to have, unfortunately, because of these high-profile cases, we have more informed juries and we have more tools for prosecutors like expert witness testimony. Hopefully, we'll see better outcomes comes, but an attorney should believe the victim and then move forward. Okay, but this isn't your normal case. It's not. It's I mean, not. But uh, it should be, huh? right? We, we shouldn't say, well, it's Bill Cosby or, oh, it's Jerry Sandusky. It's a rape allegation. It's a sexual assault allegation, and we should be blind to who the perpetrator is and treat the case accordingly. Unfortunately, we don't do that. And frankly, in other ways, it is a it is a common case. Mm -hmm. um, you, you've got um, 
allegations of, of um, somebody who's perpetrating serial crimes as an adult, who's utilizing drugs and alcohol strategically, mm-hmm. who's relying on um, the, the, the public's disbelief to hide their actions. In many ways, this is textbook. Mm-hmm. Okay, but does that keep a prosecutor from maybe pursuing a case of course. sometimes? Yeah. Yeah, it's scary. You know, because if they bring an accusation and it doesn't succeed, then they look like a failure, at least in maybe their opinion or their small community's opinion. We, What we need to be doing is building these prosecutors up to let them know, no, believing the victim is where there is integrity. That's where you're going to be able to build your reputation, not, you know, holding an accusation because you're afraid of taking down a pillar of your community. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about the, you know, what issues this raises. Uh, Jennifer, in your mind, what issues does the Cosby case bring up? Oh, well, I, you know, I think I think there's there's a lot. I think statute of limitations is a huge topic right now. Mm-hmm. And and in Pennsylvania, we have, I believe there are six different bills um, hoping to modify our statute of limitations. There's no statute of limitations on murder. That's a heinous, horrific crime that alters the life of many. I would contest that that rape is the same. I I would contend that rape is the same. I don't think we should have a statute of limitations. Oftentimes, it time bars victims from seeking any form of justice. Um, It it highlights the fact, though, that also civil justice is a good course of action for victims. And in this case specifically, a lot of these victims are now coming forward and filing defamation suits because of how aggressive— Cosby and his attorneys have been. So it's allowing them to get depositions that they otherwise never would have been able to get. So I know oftentimes when a victim chooses a civil route, they're often looked upon as greedy or just in it for the money. And oftentimes for them, it's the only way that they can get an admission. And oftentimes for victims, it's just it's about justice. And what we saw in Andrea's case was when she did go the civil route and get a civil deposition, he admitted to what he did and And how rare it is. Yes. Yes. How rare it is that we're actually seeing that. And it's Cosby's fault that we're seeing it, which is rather brilliant, in my opinion. Um, So I think it does. It highlights a lot of things that civil recourse is is really important for victims, and it's a viable option. But we need to abolish the statute of limitations, and we need to let victims take the time that they need to heal, to recover, to get to a point where they are comfortable enough to come forward and report these types of cases to know that there's going to be justice on their side. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? It's it's our top priority. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, in the end, who does the statute of limitations protect? Mm-hmm. Nobody but offenders, honestly, because there's by by allowing somebody to, to come forth, make a report, share evidence that perhaps they've been holding on to or allow an investigation to see what it can find. Nobody's, you know, just because somebody makes a report does not mean we're going to suddenly clog the court system with unwinnable cases. Other states that have eliminated their statute of limitations have not, you know, had that problem. That's not what happens. We're simply adjusting the law to reflect the conditions that are real in life. Well, what has happened in other states? Are there more convictions? Are there more people coming forward, more victims coming forward? Yes. Um, frankly, because we, it's hard to account for how many people try to come forward and find that they're barred. Um, nobody really keeps a tab on that. We, I certainly know our office gets phone calls from people throughout the year, every year, saying, is there anything that I can do? I finally came forward. I went to the police, and I was told the statute has run out. It, it happens regularly. So if we don't have that statute in the way anymore, it at least allows them to examine, is there something bona fide here? Is there something we need to be looking into? Is there something that we can turn over and allow a prosecutor to look at and make that decision? And 
you know, in the bottom, in the end, that's in the best interest of community safety because if there is something there that you can move on, it's in the interest of community safety to allow it. All right, let me, uh, and I'm not disagreeing with you as far as what you're advocating for abolishing statute of limitations, but let me push back a little Mm bit. Uh, Jennifer, you said that uh, we have no statute of limitations against murder. Mm -hmm. The difference is in many murder cases, there's physical evidence, and there may be in sexual assault Mm -hmm. cases too, but often it's a he said, she said, she said, she said. You know, mm-hmm. there are two people who have different views of the story or telling different stories. Memories, you know, if it's 10 years, mm-hmm. 20 years, memories change, witnesses, idea. So I'm bringing these things up. Isn't it a little different than a murder case? I don't think so. I've seen murder cases go forward without a body. And, and it's based on True. circumstantial evidence. So I think you need, I think prosecutors need to have as many tools at their disposal as they can have. And when you have an individual who is making an accusation, they should have a path to justice. Whatever that looks like, there should be a process for them, whether they told right away, whether it took them a week, a month, or five years. When you have these high-profile cases, it often triggers for these victims the reality of what occurred. Some of them don't even identify as victims until they see something like this in the headlines. So it, it really is a long process. It's why we now have expert witness testimony. It's now why people can take the stand and explain this to juries so that they understand the psychological impacts. You know, 38 states have abolished criminal uh, statute of limitations. Nine states 38. Have done, 38 have abolished some form of their criminal, and nine have um, abolished their civil. So it's not, you know, it's not destroying all these other states. We're not seeing all these false allegations or that we're wasting taxpayer dollars to prosecute these cases. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're discussing whether the Cosby arrest signals change. Our guest today, Kristen Hauser, Chief Public Affairs Officer with the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, and Jennifer Storm, Pennsylvania's victim advocate. We welcome your questions and comments, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Whenever we uh, talk about a case like this, we do have listeners who will share personal experiences. And I have an email here from a listener who says, My ex-wife molested our adopted son six years ago when he was 17. He's worked hard and moved on, but I worry someday he will change his mind about prosecuting his mother, and it will be beyond the statute of limitations. How long does he have to file charges, and what does he need to do? How many years ago did that happen, did he say? Six. Six. Um, he has until age 50. No, wait, I'm trying to think. Is it 16 or 18? If he's a ch- if he was a child at well, the time, 17. he has until age 50. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he has 31 years. Here's the unfortunate reality for victims. You have to be a mathematician just to figure out whether or not there's a path for justice for you because of how messed up our statute of limitations are. If you are, you can take civil action if you're a child victim up until the age of 30. If you are a victim of sexual assault, but it happened after the age of 18, you only have 12 years. If you are a child sexual assault victim under the age of 18, you were born after August 27th of 2002, you have 32 years after your 18th birthday. So up to age 50. 
50. You have to be a mathematician just to figure this stuff out. Yeah, you get carded to see if you're uh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. literally have to sit and do the math. Like, oh, do I have, is justice available for me? What was the law when it happened? Yeah, That's and crazy. We, we've changed ours, but it's been incremental, incremental, yes. in, incremental. Okay. So what then, Kristen, does the uh, Cosby case stay, say about the statute of limitations? I mean, the uh, new district attorney, Montgomery County, admitted that he's bringing these this, these charges now before the statute of limitations run out. Right. Well, I, I think that this case um, really makes a strong argument for abolishing the statute of limitations. Um, what What's rare about, not when, and when I say case, I mean the whole case of all the allegations against okay. Bill Cosby. We have, depending on who's doing the count, between 40 or over 50 different women who've come forward with allegations um, that, that pretty much are uh, demonstrating a, a well-honed pattern of operation, well-honed methods. He has an MO. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Spanning decades. And th this is what um, I, I think that there's so many misperceptions that the, the public has about sexual assault, but this really is, is sort of you know, pulling the cover off of it all. When we're talking about people that are committing these offenses as adults, this is part of how they're oriented to the world until they get intervention, you know, and, and somebody holds them accountable and they're they're taught about how to change their actions based on what their impulses are. So the frequency with which people offend may change. It, it may vary. Um, but it is the norm to have somebody who's a serial offender. And just because they're serially perpetrating against people that they know um, doesn't alter the dangerousness of them. It doesn't alter the impact it has on our society. So this case, we've got this many people showing the same M.O. spanning decades to me, is the argument for why we need to get rid of the statute of limitations. But Jennifer, you said that 38 states have abolished their statute of limitations. Cosby is not accused of just women, of uh, victimizing women from Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Why hasn't he been prosecuted in other states? I know there's one other case in Los Angeles County that they're currently looking at that is within the statute of limitations. I think what's unique in this case is those who have been outside of the statute of limitations are able to seek legal recourse in other ways. So we have seven women who are currently suing Bill Cosby right. for defamation because he's been so aggressive in speaking out in the media against these claims. So what we're finding in that is that this week we're going to have depositions of Cosby's wife, which is going to be the first time, at least according to any published reports, that she's going to go on record regarding her husband's behavior and conduct and what she knew and when she knew it. And then he himself is going to be deposed again, too. So we're seeing other legal paths that victims are utilizing very um, creatively, really, and, and things that we haven't seen in the past that are bringing admissions forth. I mean, we the deposition being revealed in Andrea's civil case is unheard of. How many civil depositions are out there right now where we know offenders have admitted guilt, but yet those are sealed because they're civil? They need to be able to be prosecuted criminally, and victims need to have that right. Okay, one of the, the keys to prosecuting Cosby successfully in this case, I would think, is those other women uh, being able to testify or at least to, to show that pattern that uh, there, there is out there. Why would a judge allow that? 
because it's it's law in Pennsylvania. You can bring certain bad acts, certain prior bad acts. You can bring other testimony that corroborates a pattern of behavior. Um, what what's interesting in this case is every single victim's story is so similar that there's clearly a pattern of behavior over time, and that evidence can be used. Now we don't know if the DA is who's being sworn in today. So congratulations uh, is going to choose to do that or not, but the case law allows him to do so. But wouldn't uh, well, I'm, you know I'm not arguing in the case for him, mm-hmm. but I'm sure that his lawyer is going to say that's prejudicial, that uh, a jury hears this and there have been no other criminal charges filed, mm-hmm. that, you know, th- this jury is going to hear that and say, oh, he must be guilty, that it's an un- unfair for the defendant. That That's how case law works. Yeah. I mean, the judge is going to make a ruling on that. You will have to wait and see mm-hmm. if they allow it or not. Yep. <laughs> you, know? you, you think they're going to allow it? It's admissible. I think they will. But, you know. Chris, you're shaking your head that doesn't work <laughs> on radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's, uh, you know, what can I say? I can't predict the future, but do, do I think it's a real possibility? Yeah, I do. I think it's a real possibility that they'll they'll allow for it. Well, it almost seems as though the case would depend on that because because there is not well, physical evidence. But not, not necessarily, though, because what was revealed when the deposition mm-hmm. was unsealed was, was more information about things that he admitted okay, to. Okay, he did admit yeah, that. Yeah, you have an yeah. admission, which is so rare so, in these and you, cases. And you do have the, the um, prior DA who said... Not that he didn't believe the victim, but simply he didn't feel at the time he had enough to bring it forward. But he's on record saying he clearly thought her story mm-hmm. was consistent with somebody who was drugged and did not have memory of what happened to them. So that's already there and that's documented. And now when the deposition's been unsealed, we have admission of digital penetration right. by Cosby. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do you need all this other stuff? You know, we'll we'll see what it takes, but um, that that's that's the heart and soul of why they brought this forward. The charges are indecent sexual assault. Is that different from rape? Yes and no. Pennsylvania just wrote their laws mm-hmm. kind of weird, you know. So other <laughs> other states, <You're> me. <laughs> other shocking. states may put it all <laughs> under one title. Um, Pennsylvania saves uh, the rape statute for vaginal penetration mm-hmm. and all other kinds of penetration go under IDSI. And it's a second degree felony as opposed to rape being a first degree felony. Okay, so I was a, a little sentence. surprised that I saw that uh, if he would be convicted, there was a possibility of him going to jail for five to ten years, I believe. Each each charge carries a, a minimum of five, a maximum of a ten. So okay. he's being charged with three counts of second-degree felony. Because that did not sound like a lot in comparison to mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, what is a, yeah. an out-and-out rape. Yeah. Or I say out and out rape, uh, you know, what, where there is intercourse and, you know, weapon uh, introduced and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I hate to bring this up, but I know that these are things that these are things I have learned off of while well, talking to the two of you. But I also learned from uh, TV shows is that they will bring up the victim's background. One of the things that they're sure to bring up in Andrea's case is that. Um, even though this incident occurred, that he had made sexual advances toward her in the past, that she came to his home, came back to his home mm-hmm. when this occurred. I'm sure that's going to be that's going to be raised as to why would she do this? And I'm not just talking about Andrea Constant in this mm-hmm. case, but you see this many times with with victims where that question will be asked. Well, if you were so afraid of of the perpetrator, mm-hmm. why did you do this? 
I don't th- necessarily think you're afraid ahead no. of time. Somebody may be making you uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but our culture really conditions women in particularly uh, to second guess themselves. Mm-hmm. And when you have somebody who's offering mentorship, who's been you know widely successful, um, who, who's offering to help you and assist you, you'll talk yourself out of, of trusting your gut. I mean, victims tell us this all the time that, you know, something didn't feel right, but then they thought, he's a nice guy, he's mm-hmm. successful, he's offering to help me, yeah. you know, what what have you. My friends trust him, My f- he's he's extended family. I mean, the, the excuses of w- why we will override our, our gut, um, I think any listener out there can think of situations where they've overrode their gut um, based on other people's perceptions and uh, and then later on found out that, oh, I wish I sure I sure wish I had trusted yeah. it. it. This is this is just normal human behavior. You want to believe somebody who's offering you kindness is going to deliver yeah. kindness. And it's not uncommon for women to be hit on all the time by their male counterparts or female counterparts for that matter. It doesn't necessarily immediately trigger in your mind like, oh my gosh, this guy's going to offend upon me or this person's going to physically harm me. Unfortunately, sexual innuendos and and being hit on it, it's common. So you know to make that leap to say, okay, this is a dangerous person as opposed to okay, this person just, you know, engaging in, in normal, societally acceptable behavior, um, you know, th- there's a, that's a big leap, and not all women make that, and, and yeah. necessarily not necess- they shouldn't necessarily always make that. In this case, and the, the, the pattern that Cosby has uh, alleged to have shown by uh, these more than 50, 50 victims is that he would drug them, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, he would, I think I read somewhere they used the word sedative, sedative but quaaludes apparently was, uh, you know, that was his favorite drug. Uh, drug to use is the law does the law say anything more about incapacitating uh, a victim i mean is there are there stronger laws longer sentences if you do that well that's why it's a second degree felony um because part of this law talks about the victim being rendered inco- unconscious talked about incapacitation the un- the inability to give consent so that's why it's it's being charged the way that it is mm-hmm. okay and Chris, when you say this is a textbook case or as far as uh, Cosby goes with uh, incapacitating the victim well I what I mean is that it's drugs and alcohol are used in the commission of sexual assaults commonly mm-hmm. and How um, common I, very commonly. Very common. oh, okay. very, yeah, so, so the I mean, bottom line, though, is not they're not always used in the way that the allegations against Cosby right, are. Right, you know, right. many many people choose to get intoxicated. It's very socially acceptable in a lot of parts of our culture. People will get intoxicated. They will binge drink. They they will have one too many. They they will consume on their own. And you don't need to secretly drug somebody, which is what he's you know, um, alleged um, what the allegations are against him. So, but the bottom line is offenders, this is what we need to keep in mind. Offenders use intoxicants strategically, certainly to increase victim vulnerability, take advantage of a situation someone else is willingly participating in or do it the way that uh, Cosby's alleged to have done it. Number two, they'll consume alcohol and drugs on their own to lower their own inhibitions about doing what they're setting out to do. And number three, and this is really the big important one, they know that the general public right now is still willing to not take it seriously if drugs and alcohol are involved. So it's a little bit of a social insurance policy. And as long as the public doesn't take it seriously when drugs or alcohol are involved, and we think it's not not a real, it's not as serious as a rape. I'm sorry, rape is rape, mm-hmm. and we all need to take this seriously. 
And, and, you know, we've had this conversation many times in the last year or so about college campuses in Mm -hmm. particular, Mm -hmm. uh, where very often the story is that uh, the victim has gotten intoxicated and... uh, you know, doesn't remember what happened, or if she does, uh, you know, wakes up and her pants are down or, or, or something like that. And as Kristen just described, very often, uh, I don't know if a jury takes that into consideration, but we as a society look at it and say, well, she brought it on herself. Mm-hmm. Is that what happens? It, it does, unfortunately. And that's why we need to really be educating about consent, when it can be given, when it can't be given, how it needs to be given. Uh, a lot of young people don't understand consent, and they don't understand it in the in the realm of drinking, in the environment. When you enter into a college campus, many of these young people, it might be the first time they're drinking, could be, you know, that they've had a, a history of drinking. But the, the degree of which you drink at college is vastly different. I mean, binge drinking is the norm. And we need to be doing a much better job at educating both men, young men and young women about the dangers of of binge drinking and when consent can be given and when it can't. You have people who strategically, as Kristen said, rely upon the fact that they know that victim's going to wake up tomorrow and her memory is going to be very cloudy. She's not going to be able to very linearly tell them or tell a law enforcement officer, this is what happened, this is who did it. And they know that. So they prey upon these young women. We've heard it from unfortunate and some of the uncovering of of some of the, the fraternity cases that we've heard that they strategically, you know, seek out girls at parties that are engaging in one or too many drinks because they know they're more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And let, let, I just want to point out, too, because this is another error that the public makes commonly, is they think, oh, these are young people and they're just errors of youth. Not true. Mm-hmm. What we know about offending, sexual offending, um, is that usually the patterns begin in adolescence and um, we'll, we'll continue into adulthood when unchecked. So by the time somebody's got to college and they are 18, 20, 21, it's usually not the first time that um, some of these behaviors are are coming out. So um, we need to take it seriously. Plus, the younger somebody is when you intervene, the more likely it is that you're going to have an intervention that's going to help change their behavior uh, throughout the lifespan. It's much easier to change somebody's pattern of behavior when it's only a few years old compared to, you know, waiting until they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, or 70s to hold them accountable. You know, if you would have said 70s uh, before this Cosby case, I said, what? Are you kidding me? But, you know, this guy's 78 years old, and he would have been 66 when this occurred, and apparently it's been going on for for a long time now. Um, You know, I want to get back to Cosby, and I wonder... ask about a fair trial because there are a couple different aspects of this that mm-hmm. are much different um, I, I said to you before the, sh- the show Jennifer that uh, I read last week there was a you know with a high profile case like this you have experts coming out of the wall yes. and I heard one legal expert say that uh, he thinks that even if Cosby is convicted he's not going to do any jail time because of his age and as we saw last week that uh, you know he looks like he has some medical issues as, as well. I don't know where he got that cane yeah. or fell over that uh, that curb, but uh, that he looks like he has some medical issues. I heard his lawyer say that he's legally blind now, too. But I wonder about the, some of the issues of whether there can be a fair trial. One, you have a, a jury looking at a celebrity who, up until this point, had so much respect uh, was an icon, not just in this country, but around the world, uh, a family man, uh, you know, known for one, one of the best family-oriented shows ever on, on television. So you, you have a jury looking at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But then uh, on the on the on the other hand, you also have so much publicity on this case. I think it would be difficult to pick a jury. You know, it, I think it, it'll be challenging for them to find a jury that has not heard or seen anything about this case, right? That's going to be probably impossible. What I've seen in, in working at the local level and, and, and talking with juries after cases, and, and even in high-profile cases when juries are polled afterwards, they take these cases very seriously. And they're going to be given very strict instructions by the judge um, so that they are to only look at the facts presented to them in the case. Now, is it impossible to take away all that you know about Cosby and your kind of own perception and history, it, it, it will be hard. But I think that there are 12 people in Montgomery County or in the state of Pennsylvania that can very easily, you know, take all that away and just look at the facts as they are presented to them in court, as they are supposed to, and render a decision based on that. I have the utmost faith in our criminal justice system. Juries do it all the time in high, high profile cases. And oftentimes they make they make the right decision. Sometimes they don't. You know, it, it all depends. But I do believe that it will be easy to find 12 people who can look at this case solely on the facts and render a decision based on those facts. Kristen, I hate to keep going back to the Sandusky case, but there are some similarities. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jerry Sandusky, not nearly as well known as Bill Cosby, but in Center County, in Pennsylvania, those who followed Penn State football, mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing. Guy had a great reputation, mm-hmm. you know, working with kids and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that a concern when that jury was chosen? I, it was a concern, particularly in, in Center County, and that's that that was part of uh, you know some of the things that the defense brought up. You know? mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, there there, there are challenges, but um, again, when they interviewed those jury members mm-hmm. afterwards, that those things weren't really part of what they were considering sitting in, in that room deliberating. Mm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest today, Jennifer Storm, Pennsylvania's victim advocate, and Kristen Hauser, Chief Public Affairs Officer with the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. We're talking about some of the issues raised by the arrest of Bill Cosby. 1-800-729-7532 is our phone number, or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. We do have uh, an email here from a listener says, I think this is a very important issue. My question is, your guest mentioned some legislation. Uh, was it, she said eight bills. Is it eight or no, six? No, it's six. I okay, I was going to say, I thought six. it was six. Currently five. Be, five, okay. Sorry. Currently being proposed in Pennsylvania. What are they? Are there any state legislators that are championing these efforts? How can we get involved in supporting measures, moving the issue victims' rights and statute of limitations laws forward in Pennsylvania? Sure. We have some amazing legislators who are really taking this issue uh, to heart and are really pressing forward hard um, against a lot of adversity. There are, there are some uh, individuals who are just not in support of this, but we do. We have two, three Senate bills, Senate Bill 172 and 173, that would completely eliminate the civil and criminal um, statute of limitations. Those are um, introduced by Senator Boscola. And then we have Senate Bill 770 and House Bill 951, which would create a two-year window, which some states have done this with a degree of success where they've basically said, okay, we're going to open the door for a limited amount of time for any time-barred victims previously to come forward and bring their claims. Um, So those two that do that. The one that I'm championing, and I believe PCARS as well, would be House Bill 661, which Representative Mark Rossi, I know you've had him on your show and you've talked about this, is an incredibly passionate um, advocate for victims of sexual violence. And his bill would raise the civil age to 50. So that's obviously one that we're supporting. I mean, I know myself personally, I want to see an abolishment completely. 
Um, but certainly if we can reach a compromise that allows more victims to bring forth claims, I'm supportive of that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we have had Representative Rossi on the program, and he has a, a heck of a story to, mm-hmm. to, to tell. Uh, but... <laughs> You know, I think that we often, maybe even some of us in the media, uh, right now with the legislature, all we're focusing on is the state budget. Budget, budget, budget. And, you know, there are a lot of other things going on in the yeah. legislature rather than uh, yeah. rather than just working on a state budget. So, you know, we're at the beginning of a year. Is this something that would they, these bills have to be reintroduced or are they just part of this session? No, they're part of this session. So okay. it, it is, has been frustrating. I've got five restitution bills that would open floodgates of dollars for crime victims that have just been sitting and waiting because of the budget negotiations. So it, it, there, it's been frustrating on, on a multitude of levels. Thankfully, programs are now getting funding. But, yeah, unfortunately, some of these bills have taken the backseat to the larger pension and budget and liquor reform. Hopefully, we're going to get through some of that. But, yeah, we do have the entire session. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of support now? I, you know, I know uh, Senator Buscolo, obviously a Democrat. Mm-hmm. I can't remember whether Representative Rossi, I think he's Republican, isn't he? No, he's not. No, he's a Democrat. Is he a Democrat? And is Tom Mert, Tom Mert. Representative Tom Mert. But he's Republican. He's Republican. Right. So there is it's bipartisan. bipartisan. Montgomery County. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yes. there is bipartisan there support. There is bipartisan support, absolutely. Rob Templitz has been very outspoken. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we also have Diminen, who's been a sponsor of some of the legislation. We've, got, we've had some really good leadership step forward and take this issue on uh we have a uh another email that says about the the deposition is this wednesday in massachusetts mm-hmm. that's uh camille cosby his his wife uh, hopefully the da in montgomery county be allowed to let other victims of cosby's victims testify in andrea constant's case uh by the way and let me just move down here a rape kit in andrea's situation would not have been useful uh, Cosby digitally mm-hmm. penetrated her. This is still a sexual assault to a semi-unconscious well, well, person. That, that depends. You might yeah. not have DNA evidence from a seminal flu like you mm-hmm. do in other sexual assaults. But um, if you had blood toxicology uh, that would have shown... Scrapes, you know, cuts. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There, there could have been other, other things documented. But, you know, in the end, um, a, a rape kit often does not deal with the issue of consent. It mm-hmm. deals with the identification of who the alleged assailant is. You can confirm that or deny it. Um, and you can say, uh, in some cases, whether or not um, sexual acts occurred. But the issue of whether or not it was consented to is, is um, mm-hmm. unless you have you know documents of, of um, egregious injuries, um, you know, we've we've certainly seen defense attorneys, even when you've got mild injuries, saying, well, you know, that sometimes people like it that yeah. way. You know, yes. so the, it's, you know, the issue of consent of is never solved, but is rarely solved by a rape kit. Yeah. How often is there a rape kit? In a, in a a case that goes uh, a sexual I, assault case, I couldn't that, I couldn't answer that. Yeah, I don't know if we have any statistics. I mean, if if a victim goes to the hospital, then a rape uh, kit will most likely occur. Well, see, the reason I asked that question is because earlier you were talking about how often uh, there is the delay mm-hmm. from the incident until the time that it is reported. Mm-hmm. So a rape kit can't be, uh, for the most part, can't be used in a, in a case like that. Yeah. Um, but it, even as Kristen said, it still comes down to like this he said, she said society that we live in. It comes down to consent, whether that sex um, act was consensual or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, the, didn't we just have some legislation here? And I'm totally, if I'm wrong here, just say, Scott, you're wrong. <laughs> Haven't we recently have legislation that dealing with rape kits? Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, we we did. We've um, we've made some amendments to try to allow for um, more timely processing. To That's try, right. yeah, yeah, to try to document how many are sitting around unprocessed, um, to put out some standards about uh, storage, et cetera. So you know, trying to make sure that the system is working the way it is supposed yeah. to. Um, you know, to, to our knowledge at this point, Pennsylvania says that we, we do not have a backlog problem. Um, but part of what that legislation and uh, the rules and regs are, have uh, set forth is trying uh, perhaps to try to, to, to capture that. Because that's based on, you know, the kits that have been collected that have been sent to the state crime labs do seem to be getting processed within a six-month window. But what we don't know is how many kits are, you know, are there kits that are sitting around in drawers or closets that haven't been sent to the lab? And we don't have an accounting for the labs that are operated by the city of Philadelphia or by Allegheny County. They're, they're not state-run. So um, there, there are some unanswered um, pieces to that equation that, that hopefully um, once everything is, is operating, we're counting everything, we'll have a better idea of, of what Pennsylvania looks like. So why would there be a backlog? Why would rape kits be sitting around <laughs> uh, anyway? There's been a huge national backlog issue that has just most recently in the past couple of years been uncovered. We've had kits just sitting in storage rooms and, and like she said, desk drawers, and they've gone untested. And and to add to that, um, we've also had numerous police departments around the country uh, come under scrutiny because you have officers who don't necessarily classify the crimes have been reported to them as sexual assaults. So this all gets back to, um, you know, whether or not a department is committed to taking these claims seriously and processing them seriously and other politics that could be at play about, you know, crime statistics for any given area, et cetera, et cetera. So we we have seen um, in Philadelphia is one of the cities who came under a lot of mm-hmm. fire about 10 years ago for, for doing this, that we weren't taking sexual assaults seriously. We weren't investigating them. And you're, if you're not going to investigate, you certainly aren't going to send that rape kit on. Yeah. Okay, we're talking about statute of limitations. Is there a time when a rape kit would be destroyed or just thrown out? The legislation did state a time. Yeah, they had to be uh, preserved for at least two. But I, I, thought I feel it was two like, years. I, I feel like that's a minimum. But uh, yeah, but yeah. you also need to make sure that they're stored properly. Yeah. So they're not contaminated in any way. Stored properly, how? Well, if you if a desk drawer doesn't sound like the way. No, it's, no. no. <laughs> if any element can get at it right, and, and, right. and contaminate any piece of the evidence, then it's not going to be admissible in court. Right, right. Or the chain of custody, if that's broken in any way, that's great. You know, in, in for a defense attorney to say, well, we don't really know. Did it go right to the lab from the officer? Did it go from the hospital to the officer? Who else had access to it? Um, and, and you know, defense looks at that strongly. Yeah, and that kind of doesn't have anything to do with the Cosby case. No. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's good to talk about these things it is. in, in uh, relationship to uh, sexual assault. And I want to get back to something that you had said about, you know, we, we have this victim-blaming culture. And, and, we, and you asked specifically, you know, why, why did she go back to his right, house? And right, we hear this right. so often. So I want to kind of put it in, in the terms that maybe the general public could understand. So if an individual who went to the Boston Marathon was there during the bombing, would you fault them for having gone back the prior year to support? people and and get involved in the Boston Strong, you know, or if I got if I had gone to an ATM and took out $300 and then had a gun to my back and got, you know, jacked as a result, would you blame me for going back to an ATM? I mean, I think we need to get out of this mindset of where we're constantly blaming victims, where we're looking at all their behaviors, we're trying to analyze them, we're trying trying to presuppose our own kind of, well, we wouldn't have done that. And we need to just look at the, the crime itself. Someone 
perpetrated an offense upon her. That is absolutely not her fault, regardless of what she had done. We don't do this in any other crime. It fascinates me still to this day that we, we the level of scrutiny that we place upon people when they're violently assaulted. Mm-hmm. I, you know, something that, uh, Kristen, we've talked about this on the air many times, but, uh, and, it, and it's one of the reasons that... Uh, well, there, there are two ways to look at it, and I'll just put it out there, is that uh, most victims don't report the crime, that rape right. or sexual assault is... Uh, the prob- most underreported. Mm-hmm. Why? Yep. But, but, but why? I mean, we've, we've it, touched it on any, any number of reasons thing. here. Yeah. It boils down to one... I mean, you all, all the individual reasons people give fall under this one reason, which is that victims don't trust the rest of us to respond appropriately. So they may be afraid of privacy violations, gossip among a circle of friends, having their name show up in the media, being blamed, having to answer questions about why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why did la 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 about why aren't you going to do this? What have you done? Have you thought about this? Have you thought? I mean, so people and, and we have had, again, high profile cases of people not responding properly. We see how social media is used to to beyond bully, but like literally terrorize victims who have come forward or who have confided in friends. We've seen videos and photographs of sexual assaults be circulated among people using electronic communications and social media. So, you know, I would sit back and say, what do we all want to do to make it a safe environment for victims to come forward? Because as long as we terrorize them like this, we're basically keeping an environment that's, again, not in the best interest of public safety. All right. Walk me through this. Now, Jennifer, I'm going to ask you, too, but uh, often your office gets involved after there's mm-hmm. been a sentence hand down, handed down. But you are contacted, you meaning PSAR, the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, that Picard, that you are, uh, you get contacted from time to time by victims who mm-hmm. said, you know, I've been victimized. Walk me through the process. What do you, what do you advise them? What do you ask sure. them? What do you, how do you talk to them? Well, there, PCAR oversees and, and assists 50 rape crisis centers around Pennsylvania to work directly with victims. So we would want to find out where somebody's residing and connect them with the victim service organization that's serving their county. Those rape crisis centers can provide a variety of things depending on what the person needs at the time. So if they've never sought medical care, we can you know give them referrals, find something that's affordable. If they want assistance while they go to the police to make a report, we will accompany them to do that. We will help explain what to expect through the court system and go to the, all those proceedings with them. We will help their family be prepared. We offer crisis counseling. Many offer group counseling. Many offer, uh, some offer individual therapy, uh, depending on whether or not they have licensed staff. And if they don't offer it there, they can make referrals in the community for where you can get that. Um, we see sexual assault disrupt people's lives in so many different ways. So employment may become difficult. If you, if you need to think about it, if you're working an hourly wage job and you're not sleeping you don't support from your family maybe things change and you need to change your housing you've got court proceedings to attend which you don't always get great notification (laughs) you know all those things can can be difficult so um, our centers try to help people manage all the different ways that their lives are impacted by sexual assault so those things are all available Jennifer Mm -hmm. let's talk about your office before you became the Commonwealth victim advocate uh, you were head of Dauphin County's 
uh, victim uh, assistance mm-hmm. and uh, witness protection program. Um, talk about uh, when you get involved. First of all, let me ask you this. Have you been in contact, your office been in contact with Andrea Constant? No, we have not. So my office serves a twofold purpose. Um, our legislative mandate is to ensure that every single crime victim that their rights are afforded to them at the time of sentencing. So as soon as an individual is sentenced, if they come under the care of the state, whether that's through probation and parole or incarceration, all of their rights then default to our agency. So then it's our responsibility to make the notifications about, you know, what's the conduct of that individual once they're when they're incarcerated. We'll check on their restitution status. We'll let the victim know when that person may be coming up for parole consideration and let them know all the input options that they have to come before the parole board. So we do with that. But my charge as the victim advocate is also kind of vague, and it's, it's rather broad, and it's to advocate in general on behalf of any crime victim in the Commonwealth. So if someone like Andre would call my office and say, you know, this is, and this happens all the time, I get contacted by victims constantly, you know, I have this case and, and the prosecutor won't move forward, or I, or I had this bad experience at a law enforcement office, I have the ability to intervene with that victim and work with the with the police department or work with that district attorney and try to advocate for that victim. Oftentimes they're coming well after the fact and saying, well, I just want to make this change in law. So then I can work with them to create policy change, to have them come forward to the legislature and provide testimony as to what their experience was and why we should change certain laws. So I, I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of different moving parts to my office. But yes, at the local level right now, Montgomery County, every district attorney in the Commonwealth is charged to make sure victims' rights are afforded to them. They often do this through victim witness coordinators or victim witness advocates. So every DA, all 67 DAs, they have some entity or agency that they work with. Sometimes it's internal within their office. Sometimes, like in Dolphin County, they contracted with a nonprofit like they did when I worked there. Those um, advocates are the ones that are responsible now for making sure Andrea or any other victim in that, for that matter, know when the case is coming to trial, know all the court events, um, have accompaniment to those events, have the right to sit and confer with the prosecutor. I can guarantee you that office has been in touch with her. She knew about the press conference. She knew about the charges. So there are certain rights under the Crime Victims Act that crime victims have, and the DAs are responsible to ensuring those rights are afforded to victims. You know, I'm wondering how the public is responding to uh, Andrea Constant. Uh, I, I understand that when Cosby went, uh, it wasn't real, I don't know if you call it a perp walk or not, it's a little bit different. Uh, last week, there were people yelling, you're garbage, uh, you know, you're trash, uh, you're guilty, and all those things. But we know with social media, there are people, and just what you described, mm-hmm. uh, Kristen, that I'm wondering if, if maybe there are people who are contacting her and saying you're just in this for the yeah. money or this, don't you know who this guy is? I mean, there's been a, a support. I mean, there's the hashtag pray for Cosby that I've seen. I think in general, m- the majority of the public opinion has turned on Cosby. I mean, even when you've seen some of these high profile um, fellow actors and fellow comedians come out and support, even they have kind of turned. And there's now only some like obscure couple comedians that, have, that are coming to his defense. I think majority you're seeing people really supporting the victims. And now even those that said, well, he's hasn't been convicted. He hasn't been charged. Now that he has been charged, I think it's even it's even more. Now, she's smart and she's not in this country right now. All so I think she's she's right. got some protection yeah. from that. But I'm sure she's getting some type of inappropriate, you know, communication. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we only have a minute left. And great conversation, as always, with the two of you on, on the air today. Uh, so, Kristen, what do you think happens with Bill Cosby? Well... Uh, I'm not going to make a prediction. I think we need to to wait and see. 
And uh, it isn't like a football game, is it? <laughs> you can't even predict that I, anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to predict. But what I, what I can say is that um, regardless of what turn this this takes, you know, we will be out there trying to work with the press to educate the public about what's going on and remind them about what's normal when it comes to sexual assault. Uh, Jennifer, 30 seconds. What do you think? I think I hope to see the L.A. County prosecutors follow suit and, and, and stand with that victim and, and bring forth more charges. And my overarching goal is that we just have a society that's more understanding and more um, sympathetic to victims and that we believe them, we support them. Jennifer Storm, Pennsylvania's victim advocate, and Kristen Hauser, chief public affairs officer of Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we're going to be talking about, uh, well, we go from uh, talking about Bill Cosby, talking about fish in the Susquehanna River. Uh, we do have uh, the Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection, John Quigley, and the Executive Director of John, or- uh, John Orway's Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. That's coming up tomorrow. Other environmental issues discussed as well.